Let's get into the Word of God. We're going to start with uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, and then we're going to go to another part of the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 2, turn there. I'm going to start reading with verse 18. Now the last few weeks we've been talking about apostasy in the church, talking about evil men crept in unawares. We've talked about Balaam and how he was able to show the king that one of the Israelites wiped out. He was able to show them, show him a way how he could corrupt the nation of Israel from within. Now we have a whole lot of churches in America and many different types of churches. We have mega churches, thousands and thousands of people attending, and we have small country churches with very few attending, all kinds of different denominations. And just because a church is big, has a whole lot of people, don't mean that they are doing the right thing. Be very cautious of apostasy, especially on TV. Be wise. Do not be tricked. Because you could back up to verse 14 and it'll say, uh, these people that are, that are leading you astray, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. Now, unstable souls are the type of people who would come to a church to try to fix things and they could be taken advantage of. And I've seen it with my very own eyes in years gone by, and it is not good at all. It makes me very angry to look back on it and to see people who were supposed to be there to help that actually preyed on unstable souls. All right, verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh. Now remember, that word, now that might have been Wednesday night. We were talking about the word lust. Now you having a strong desire for something isn't necessarily bad, but uh, you might have an ungodly lust for a whole lot of money. Well, you can go to a prosperity preaching church and they'll tell you everything you want to hear. And you get all excited because you have a lust for money. A lot of people do. Uh, I was at a church down in Florida one time, and uh, they were all about prosperity preaching. And they had a tithing message every single week. You know, and, and I, I am guilty of not talking about tithing because I've been in too many churches that were all about making money, and they made people feel guilty for not giving money and so I tend to go the other way, which is wrong as well. You know, you, you want a blessing. God said he'll bless those who give. So you can go all the way back to Genesis, way before the law, and see where Jacob saw what God did for him, and he said, I will surely give you a tenth. So the principle's there. But there are so many big churches. I remember that church and how they had gotten so big, but they got away from preaching the Word, 
And it was all about supporting the big, huge mansion that they had bought, the nice, fancy cars. And I can remember the preacher having a Rolex watch on, and he was preaching about tithing and giving, and he, he, he tried to act like money didn't mean anything to him. And he took the Rolex watch off, and he was just going to throw it. And he went to throw it, and he, he just stopped, and he just barely tossed it. It was so pitiful. I mean, I laughed because he was acting like it didn't mean anything to him. He was just going to throw it across the stage there. And when he went to throw it, he just had this second thought of, I better lightly toss it onto the carpet because he had to go back and pick that thing up. And those types of places can really turn people off. And they don't want anything to do with church. Now, these uh, swelling words, men will get to the point where they study how to say things to where people will get excited and they'll say the right things so people would like to hear it. And that's what this is talking about right here. And they will talk about healings and blessings and prosperity, things that they know people might be after, and they'll say what the people want to hear and the people will come back. Through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promised them liberty, they themselves the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome of the same he is brought, is he brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge, now this is just the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, see it didn't say anything about them being changed, but they just got the knowledge of it. They are again entangled therein and overcome, talking about the bondage that they were trying to escape. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them, but it is happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now that true proverb is uh, Proverbs 26, verse 11, that says, as a dog turneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. That's not something that I ever want to say in, in, a, in a sermon. I don't want to talk about that type of stuff. But the Bible says it. Now, as far as the proverb of the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire, I, don't, I can't find that one in the Bible. But it, it's here. So it's a proverb that just didn't get recorded in Proverbs, but it's something that we need to take notice of. And, and, and I've touched on, on uh, this. I've, said, I've shared this before, but Charles Spurgeon had an had a, uh, a, a illustration that he used, and he talked about this, this sow. And I'm just going to share it just in case you haven't heard it before and maybe uh, somebody who listens on, on the podcast or something may not have heard the story. But you can find the story in Charles Spurgeon's book called All of Grace, and I think it's in chapter 6 or 7. 
And he's trying to help you understand that just because you come into a church building doesn't make you a Christian. You've heard people say just because you uh, sit down in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. You, know, you, you need to have a life-changing experience with God. And what happens with these, see, these apostates that come into churches, they're worse than an unbeliever. Just a straight-up unbeliever that you'll run across out in, in the world. Because those people are just living their life, but an apostate who comes into the church and pretends to be a Christian, they are saying things and proclaiming things out of the Word of God with a totally wrong heart about it, and they are destroying and that's really what they're sent for the devil is using them to come in and they come in and they're kind of like uh you know the angels that present themselves as angels of light but they're really up to no good and what uh charles spurgeon was talking about as far as somebody who is a, say you're an unbeliever you've made a decision I, I've, I've i've heard people especially at the jail those years of going to the jail, doing Bible study there, there are so many people that just made a decision that, you know what, I'm going to try this Bible study. Uh, or they're out of jail and they say, you know what, I'm going to go to church and try to change my life. And if all they ever do is just go to the places, they, they'll be presented with some good news. They'll, they'll hear some Bible teaching but if they don't pursue it, they don't make a decision to actually believe it, to say Jesus is the way. If they don't ever get to that, and they're just trying to fix their messed up life, there's a danger that they've been presented with the way, and then they might decide that they're going to go back to their old way of life. They look like they were doing right, they may be like this, uh, this dog. You know, a dog is not a good thing to be compared to, and a sow is not a good thing to be compared to. So Spurgeon said that, so the, the, if you take a pig and you wash all the mud off of it, clean it up, spray some perfume on it, make it smell good, and you lead it in, it's like a person just getting cleaned up and coming to church, and they're, being, they're trying to be something that they're not. And they might put on a good show for a while. But he said, if all you do is pretty up the pig, it's still a pig. What you need is a new creature in Christ. That You have to have a miracle happen, and that pig needs to be changed to a different creature. And he used the cat as the creature, creature that you'd want to change it into. Just like a sinner is miraculously changed into a child of God, they are a different person. So if you've just prettied up the pig, then that pig can go back out and be walking down the path and see mud, and they'll be drawn to that mud, and they'll go and wallow back in that mud and feel perfectly at home because truly they're still a pig. And now you can pull them back out and get them all cleaned up again and, and go through the whole process again. But if that pig has been miraculously changed into a new creature, like a cat, that cat has no desire for mud anymore. 
and it does not want to go to the mud. If it sees it, it'll avoid it. And then he'll say that, uh, he, he mentioned that even though you're a changed person, that doesn't mean you won't ever sin again. You just won't want to, but you could, like the cat, could fall off the log into the mud, but it will instantly want to get out and start to clean itself up because it's no longer a pig. So a true born-again person, they don't want to go back to the old way. But if you're just pretending to be a born-again person, you could go back to your sinful ways and you'd feel okay there because you're still the way you used to be. An apostate would be like that. A person, they, if, you, if you follow a true apostate in their everyday life, you will probably, 100% of the time, you're going to find some type of sexual sin. And I've been in churches a long time, different ones, different places. And the more I live, and the more I realize what has happened in different places and churches falling apart, the more I understand that. When, when, as we've read Jude and we've read Second Peter, we've heard a whole lot about the angels leaving their proper estate and going after strange flesh. We've heard where Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned over and over, and it was men going after what they shouldn't have been going after, strange flesh. We, we hear, we, I just read adultery, and I can tell you some stories, but I'm not going to. Heartbreaking stories. Now, turn all the way back toward the beginning of your Bible to the little book of Ruth. It's right. What, what is it after? What book is it after? Real quick. Why do you know that? Because you, you got their table contents out. All right. Good job. But uh, if you say the, the books of the Bible, you'll get to Joshua Judges Ruth. Why would he judge her? That's how you remember where it's at. And it's right before 1 Samuel. Or you could just be smart like Lois and go to the beginning of your Bible and just look and see where it's at, what page number it is, and you go right there. <clears throat> this little book of Ruth, we're going to talk about Ruth. And, and not just Ruth, but we're going to talk about Orpha, which was her sister-in-law by marriage. They were from the same country. And this is the story of Naomi. And Naomi had a husband. I think his name is Elimelech. And he, by showing some not very good faith in where he is and trusting God, he decides to move his family to Moab, to, to the nation of the Moabites. And if you remember what we just talked about in uh, uh, over in, in, in 2 Peter and... and uh, Jude, and, we're, and we're, we're thinking about Sodom and Gomorrah, and I had to read the horrible situation where Lot barely gets out of the city with his two daughters, and the terrible sin that happened between Lot and his daughters. His daughters were so messed up, and he was so vexed by the filthy uh, way of living in the city of Sodom that 
that incest happened, and the product of it was Moab and Ammon. Now here's the people of the Moabites. They were considered very unclean people. They were some pretty rotten Gentile people that the nation of Israel were not to do, have any, anything to do with because they were, the, they were the product of that terrible thing that happened between Lot and one of his daughters when they left Sodom. So that's where he takes them. It's like, why would you do that? All right, so the two boys of the family end up, after the father dies, then the two boys marry Moabite women. One is Orpha, the other one is Ruth. Those two boys die, and then Naomi hears that there's now food back home, and she's decided, you know what? This is, none of this has worked out very well. I'm going to go back. Now, her two daughters-in-law, Orpha and Ruth, have heard all about where Naomi has come from, that chosen nation. And they're both intrigued by it, and they both know that to go back to that is better than what they're living with, their, their sinful nation. Because the Moabites had little g-gods, idol worship. It was, it was a very, very bad thing. And so they get ready to go back. All right, I'm going to go down to uh, verse 8. And Naomi said unto her two daughter, daughters-in-law, Go, return each her, to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. So she's saying, look, you were, you were very good wives for my boys, but I'm going to go home. You are Gentile Moabite women. If you come back to my nation, you will not be accepted. You will be looked down upon. You will never, no one there would be willing to give a son to you for marriage, but they're instructed not to. And you're just going to live the rest of your days with nothing. And I don't have a husband anymore. I'm poor. I'm going to go back. I can't produce anything without my husband. And you're going to live in poverty. And she, they both said, no, we want to go with you. Um, the Lord grant you that ye may, this is verse 9, find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband, then she kissed, him, kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. So she's saying, y'all stay here. You can marry some of your own here and, and live a good, happy life. I'm going home. And they wept. They didn't want to leave her. And they said unto her, Surely we'll, we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Are, are there yet... She talks about how she's not going to be able to produce any new sons, and, 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 and that would be weird, uh, having a new son, having sons, and are they really going to wait that long to marry her sons when they finally get old enough? And she said, it's just not a good situation for you. You need to go back to where you, you grew up. And let's go down to... At 14, and they lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, 
but Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods, little g-gods, return thou after thy sister-in-law. You know, when we have people coming in to the church and saying, I want a new life with, with uh, Jesus and I want to be part of this church, should we be like Naomi and say, no, you don't want that. Go back to your old ways. I mean, she's trying to convince them. But Ruth, regardless of how much she's being told to not go, she has made up her mind that she, even though she might live in poverty and may not have the greatest life, she wants to go with Naomi. Do we have... Think about one of us going out into the world and representing God in a way that a young person would attach themselves to you and want to go where you go. Isn't that cool? If that could happen. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee, for whither thou goest I will go, and where thou lodgest I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Wow. Orpha had the same, exactly the same opportunity that Ruth had. They both married one of her sons. They both went through deaths of the sons. They both lived with her, heard her stories. The one was convinced to go back to the old ways. The other decided I'm not hearing anymore. I'm going with you. I've made up my mind. You know, we each and every one of us has a free will. It's hard to explain why God gave us a free will, but He did. It's also hard to explain that God is all-knowing. He's sovereign. He's all-knowing. He's got a plan, but I think His plan is going to work out regardless of whether we get on board or not. And he is given us the ability to choose him or to not choose him. So I'm not a I'm not a free will or I'm not a, a, a Calvinist. If you want to look up Calvinism and Arminianism, one's to one extreme, a free will, Arminianism, and then Calvinism to the other extreme uh, on election and and. Uh, you don't really have a choice in the matter whatsoever. And I can tell you story after story through the Bible, even, even God telling Moses to step aside, I'm killing them all. And Moses said, no, I'm not stepping aside. That's pretty brave. And Moses said, God, the, the, all these Gentile nations will say, you couldn't deliver your own people if you kill them all. And it's like God's like, yeah, you're right. Okay, you've convinced me. Uh, I don't know. And you can, you can say, well, God just gave, it, gave an opportunity. He, was, he knew what he was going to do with beforehand. I mean, you can say it every way you want to say it. But I just see over and over again, well, God, God has given man a choice, and man chooses either wrongly or right. And it's, it is hard to explain. I've listened to some of the greatest preachers try to explain it, 
I've listened to two recently of men who are still alive that are more or way more toward the Calvinist side, and they'll spend an hour trying to explain God's sovereignty and election and man's free will, and they never actually explain it, but you'll hear an awesome sermon, beautiful sermons, but they never actually are able to explain the actual question. And I think that's, and, I, and it's right on because I don't think they can explain it. <clears throat> so, Orpha decided to go back. She had been presented with the same thing Ruth had been presented, and she made a choice to go back to the old, like the dog. Going back, she was not wise. Now, Ruth... So they too, this is 19, so they too went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them, and they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. So she didn't even want it. Her, her name, Naomi, was a good name. But she left with, the next verse says, I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. And the word Mara means bitter. Why then call me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So, so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Just happened to be the beginning of barley harvest. Just happened. Just happened to be. Now this first chapter of Ruth, uh, if you have a Schofield Bible, you'll see at the very beginning of it, it says, Ruth deciding. And we need to, we need to be a people who understand that Ruth had a decision to make and we likewise need to make a decision. We need to make a decision. The second chapter, if you have that little heading, it says, Ruth serving. Now, she came back with Naomi, and she immediately wanted to be busy and to help, to be productive. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, let me, go, let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him, in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, go, my daughter. Now, gleaning is <clears throat> going, if you were a poor person, the rich man Boaz, he had this big field, and they would go out and they would harvest the field. And under Jewish law, they were told, do not harvest the corners of your fields. Uh, by accident, on purpose, miss the corners. Right? By accident, on purpose, miss the corners. And if you drop anything, don't go back and pick it up. Because after you do the field, there's going to be people, the poor people are going to come along, and they are going to glean 
the gleanings, what was left. And Ruth, she did not think of herself as anything. She was humble enough to be that type of person who would go and be like a poor person and pick things up because that's really what she was. And she was an outcast. She was from a different country. She would not be accepted. So she was willing to work. She didn't sit around waiting for a handout. She was willing to go do. You know, our programs in America are pitiful. Our programs make it to where people are encouraged to do nothing to get something when they should be encouraged to do something that they can do and then be rewarded for it. We can learn a lot in this country if we would just read our Bibles. Verse 3, And she went and, and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap, it just happens, was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. You know, there are things called divine appointments and God directs your ways. When you are making good decisions, you've made a good decision for Him, He tends to uh, light the path you need to go down. He tends to direct where you go. And it seems like you just happened on this, but really God was behind it who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. That's how he, he, his workers, he, he greeted them with, uh, with that. The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, it is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now, and she tarried a little in the house. Then said Boaz unto Ruth. So he goes to Ruth and he says, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field. Neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, Boaz, he is a kinsman redeemer. That's one of the names for Jesus. Right here, Boaz is a type and picture of Jesus Christ. And Jesus knows about her. He didn't know that that was her until somebody said, Oh yeah, that's that, that's that girl, uh, Ruth. And he said, oh, now he's heard about her. And you'll find out that he did as we read. But Boaz goes to her and says, don't go anywhere else. When we make a decision to go after the kingdom, like Naomi's people and her nation, if we decide we want to go there, then Jesus shows us the way and we are not to go any other way. We're not to go other places to get our spiritual blessings. It's only through Jesus Christ, right? Neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens, or secure by maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap. Go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink 
of that which the young men have drawn. And she, in reverence to him, so thankful, she does what we should do when we get blessings from the Lord. And she bowed her, her uh, she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? That is so critical that we have that same kind of heart that when Jesus offers us salvation, that we fall down on our face and we bow ourselves to him and we say, why? Why would you offer that? Why would you offer salvation to me? I don't deserve it. Who am I? You see the, see the, the relation there that we're supposed to have, just like Ruth is showing here. And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband. And how that, so the death of a husband, so the old man dying, being crucified, and now she is free to marry another. See it? You know, we, according to Romans chapter 7, the very beginning of Romans chapter 7, if the old husband hasn't died, so you can't divorce the old husband and then be remarried to another because the Bible calls that uh, adultery. And uh, Jesus cannot marry you if the old man, the old nature is still there. If you've said, all right, well, I just want this old nature of mine to go to the side, I want to divorce him, then I'll try Jesus. Well, Jesus cannot marry you if he's still around, the old man, the so-called old man, which is your flesh. The old man must be crucified and dead. Then the law states that if, if your if you're, uh, husband dies, you are free to marry another, and then you can marry Jesus. So we can see here that Ruth is free because the old man, her old man, her really he was young, but he, but the the it typifies that what we're reading here that she is free to marry another, and she actually needs Boaz to marry her, and she hasn't even thought of it yet. I don't think she's even thought of this yet. She's just so thankful that Boaz is willing to take her in and take care of her to meet her needs. Now. So he makes sure that she gets more than what a normal gleaner would get. And she takes this home, and Naomi, her mother-in-law, sees how much barley she brings back. And Ruth tells her that he wants me to come back just to his field. He don't want me going anywhere else. And she said, something's going on here. So look at the service oriented heart that she has, how humble she is, and Boaz has taken notice of her, and he wants to take care of her. And Naomi, um, over, I'm going to move over to uh, the very last couple verses. And Naomi, this is 22 and of, of 2, And Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, If it is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. 
So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean under the, unto the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, now this chapter is Ruth resting. So we are supposed to rest in the finished work of Jesus. So Ruth in chapter 3, it shows her resting. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And now is not Boaz our kindred, whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Now what does that mean? When they harvested the barley, they brought it all in to the threshing floor. And the threshing floor would be up on a hill so that it would take advantage of the wind that was coming across. And they would toss it. And when the loose shaft, the stuff that was no good, got up into the air, that would blow in the breeze to the side and all the barley seeds would fall down because that's heavy. It's got substance to it. We are, we are talked about, if we are true believers, we are the wheat we would be the barley, and anything that was not real, then that would be blown away, and then it ends up being burned up. So there's a separating process that goes on with the, the people of God. And she said, wash thyself. Wash thyself. How do we wash ourselves? With reading the Word? We read the Word, and it washes us. We become more and more clean. Now, your sin, when you believe on Jesus Christ, your sin is put away. If you truly are born again, all your sin is put away. You don't wash yourself to get rid of your sin. You wash yourself so that you'll be more holy. You want to be holy because He's holy. And you want to be like Jesus. And the only way is to wash yourself with the Word. So she said, told, wash yourself and anoint thee. What does that mean? She's putting a little perfume on, but what that says to us is we're to ask for the Holy Spirit to come on us and to be anointed by the Spirit. And put thy raiment upon thee. So you want to have the proper clothing. You want to have the spot-free robe that what Jesus gives you. Put on raiment. Upon thee, and get thee down to the floor, but make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. Don't bug him until he's eaten his meal and drank his drink, right? And then he's going to lay down. And, and, and you read this and you're thinking, this sounds really weird. Why would he be sleeping where he's sleeping? But what, what happened was, there were thieves that would sneak in at night after all the work was done and steal the grain. They didn't want to harvest. They didn't want to go through the threshing process. All that took a lot of work. It was dirty, dusty, hard work. So there were, you know, we, we always have thieves around, right? Guys who don't want to do anything, but they want the benefits of it. So what they would do after they did all the threshing and all the barley was piled up in the middle, every person who had a part in the field that was, that was protecting the harvest, they would sleep right around the big pile of grain. 
when it's time to go to bed. So their head, they would make their bed, and their head would be toward the grain, and their feet would be out. And just imagine the spokes of a wheel all going around that, every direction all the way around, so that if anybody snuck in to try to steal the grain, they'd have to sneak in between men who were ready to fight for what they worked for. It was very dangerous to go in there and steal. So that's, that's what the situation that was going on. And Naomi, see, Ruth had no idea what goes on in Jewish culture and what, what process she would have to go through. Just like a new believer may not know much about what the Bible says, and we are to direct them and to show them the right way to do things. We do that. So Ruth goes in, just like the plan was, she goes in, and the custom was you just pull the blanket up off of his feet, and you lay down there. Well, Boaz wakes up, I think it was midnight, he wakes up, and he sees her there, and she is basically, what, by what she has done, she has made it known that she wants him to be her kinsman redeemer, which means that he would buy the land that was in the family, and then he would become her husband so that she could produce seed for her dead husband to carry on his name, the dead husband's name, so that the land would stay in the family name. Well, he says, I would gladly accept. Gladly accept. But there's a kinsman that's closer than me and I have to work it out with them because if they want to act as the kinsman redeemer, I have to let them. So Boaz goes to the elders of the city the very next morning, and he makes it known. Make sure, so, they, so he shows up there, and the next in line, the guy ahead of him happens to walk through. Just happens to walk through. And he says, hey, I've been looking for you. For about three seconds, I've been looking for you. And will you sit down? I need to talk to you. And then he gathered up ten of the elders to be witnesses over what was going on. And he said, I would like to make a claim to Ruth and Naomi's land. I would like to do that, but you're next in line. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I'll do it. I'll do it. I want the land. And he said, but if you buy the land, then you will have to marry her and have a son that you will pass all that on to him and you get nothing out of it. And the guy's like, well, that's not such a good idea. And Boaz is over here going, turn it down, turn it down. I want it. I want her. It's like Jesus looking at us. Each, each, he, he, Jesus is looking down on you just like Boaz is looking on Ruth. You have come to Jesus and you've uncovered the feet, you've laid your head down, and, and you have made known to Jesus that you want him to be your kinsman redeemer. And he's very willing to do it. But there is a law standing in the way. A law. And if you're trying to be saved by the law, he can't do what you're saying you want him to do. You have to allow the law to be set aside and you are, will be available to him. 
So Boaz is so thankful. He's not worried about this inheritance being his. He's all about her and passing that lineage down. She accepts, they marry, and they end up having a son. You know what his name is? Have y'all got to the end yet? Salmon was before, and he married Rahab. Remember Rahab? She was the harlot in the city of Jericho that hid the two spies. So Rahab is a prostitute in the city of Jericho that was saved by putting the red cord out of the window. She had more faith in the God of Israel than the people of Israel had. She's in the line of Christ. Rahab is. You can go, you can, you can find some, some women, all of them were not any women that you would put in the line of Christ. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, a Moabitess? Oh, come on, no way. But she's in the line. So Boaz is the son of Salmon and Rahab, whether it's a direct son or a grandson, great-great-grandson. I can't remember exactly how that all works, but because it seems to me that would be way before. That was when Joshua was wanting to go in and conquer the land. So now you have Boaz marrying Ruth, and they have a son. So you go to the very end of uh, chapter 4. Now, now chapter 4 is Ruth being rewarded. So when we are married to Jesus, see, we're espoused to be married to Jesus. And in the Jewish custom, the espousal period, that betrothal period, was just as solid as the marriage, and you couldn't get out of that without that bill of divorcement. If something was to come up where they found out the woman really wasn't who she said she was, she wasn't pure like she said she was, you could write her a bill of divorcement and you can break that up. But that was in the beginning period of the so-called uh, marriage. The, uh, after the betrothal period, then the consummation of the marriage when they were truly man and wife and it could actually bring forth a child. So who, have y'all figured it out yet? Hmm? Obed. So Ruth gives birth to Obed. And who is Obed? Father of Jesse. And who's he? We just talked about that on a Wednesday night anyway. Father of David. And David is the king of Israel, the good king of Israel. And you follow his line all the way down to Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that cool? There's another woman in the mix when you get to David, Bathsheba. And Bathsheba had two sons, um, Solomon on the one side, which would be like a royal line down to Jesus. But that wouldn't work because... That couldn't work because if you were in that line, it was corrupted and that person could not be king. But good news, Joseph was really not Jesus' father. But then on the other side follow Mary back to another one of Bathsheba's sons, Nathan. And as a different Nathan than the prophet Nathan, they named, evidently named their son after him. And Nathan 
goes all the way down to Jesus as well. So you, you find the genealogy in Matthew, that goes from Solomon all the way down to Jesus, but you go over to Luke, and it goes from Nathan all the way down to Jesus. So you can, you can put Jesus on the throne of David from either side. He was not part of the cursed uh, descendants of, of Solomon's uh, line because Joseph wasn't his actual father. The Holy Spirit was. So, you know, the whole reason of going to Ruth was to show you that even though we all are presented with the same thing, some are going to choose to go back to our old ways. But I just really pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we that hear your word and see your wonderful stories in the Bible, Father, that we would, we would be like Ruth. We would make a decision for you. Father, we've seen your word. We've seen the people who have uh, been born again and are living with you and for you and what they have accomplished. And Father, they, they pass on from this earth with a smile on their face. They, they say goodbye to us and say the angels are taking me. Father, we want to be like Ruth. We want to make a good decision for you. Father, we want Jesus Christ to be our kinsman redeemer. He will provide for us. Father, he will save us. And Father, he, he wants us to be his bride. Father, I pray that each and every one of us here will accept it, believe it with all their hearts, and will call out to you to if they're not if we are not truly saved and believing on you, that we would get it right, right now. Father, that we would call out to you to truly save us, that we would be a new creature that would not want to go back to our old ways. Father, that if we're here looking for something better, We've been exposed to your word. We've been shown the way, but we haven't taken a hold of it. We haven't made a true decision that we ha are in danger of going back to our old ways and be in a much worse state than we ever were before we came the first time. Father, I pray we make that decision. Father, you're there. Your arms are open. You want to receive us. And Father, I pray that we go into your arms. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.